Hi, this is presenter Crystal Dinapoli, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Yama, and welcome to Indigenuity on 3 Triple R. This is a weekly conversation with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. This week's show has been created across the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang peoples of the Kulin Nations, which are the lands on which I travel and also work. So I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past and present and acknowledge their long-standing and enduring connection to this beautiful country, waterways and sky country. Always was, always will be. And also, I just wanted to send my love out to every Blackfella currently just existing in this country at the moment. I know this is a really difficult time for many. Uh, I've generally found that trying to go about my normal work or life has led to an increase in harassment, quite reminiscent of the plebiscite. And so I just hope you're well supported and keeping safe and reaching out to your loved ones if this is getting a bit much for you. On a lighter note, though, today's show, we are going to be having two wonderful guest conversations. First, we'll be speaking with Marawari woman Jane Harrison. And then with Waka Waka Man, Harley Mann. Jane Harrison is the director of the Black and Bright First Nations Literary Festival and will be speaking to us about upcoming events relating to her play, The Visitors. So The Visitors is a retelling of the events of the 26th of January, 1788, from a First Nations perspective and has been adapted across many mediums, evolving from a play to a novel and now an opera. Jane will be discussing the visitors in an upcoming event of the same name for Spring Fling at the Wheeler Centre in the State Library of Victoria, which is going to be hosted by Triple R's own Yorta Yorta broadcaster, Daniel James, and will also include an operatic performance by Wiradjuri Soprano and the Visitors Opera cast member, Shante Sherry. This event is tomorrow, Monday 9th of October at 7.30pm. Tickets for First Nations attendees are free. Otherwise, a full price ticket is only $15. And the Visitors Opera is also opening October 18th to 21st at the Arts Centre, Melbourne. We are then going to be speaking with Waka Waka Man, Harley Mann. Harley is the founder of Najinung Circus and is the director of upcoming Melbourne Fringe Circus event called Of the Land on Which We Meet. Of the Land on Which We Meet will be showing as part of the Deadly Fringe lineup across each night from Thursday, October 12th to Sunday, October 15th at the Meat Market Cobblestone Pavilion in North Melbourne. This event is also a part of the Melbourne Fringe Encore program at Geelong Arts Centre with an encore session on Saturday, 28th of October. So let's settle in and look forward to these chats. So Jane, welcome to Indigenuity. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, so I wanted to start off by talking about your your wonderful play, novel, opera that has been on an incredible journey, so The Visitors. Um, I wanted to see if we could start sort of back at the start where The Visitors began as a play. How did this story sort of come for you? Yes, uh, it started a long time ago, actually. Way back in uh, 2011, I did the first draft of the play. I was a writer-in-residence out at Monash Uni and I uh, had had this idea in my head for quite a few years. Um, I was um, partly inspired by the Northern Ter Territory intervention, which um, happened in around 2007. And I was uh, reflecting on the fact that the way men in particular were being portrayed in the media wasn't didn't fit with my view of Aboriginal men. 
And, you know, I, I knew them to be kind, good family men, knowledgeable, um, charismatic, uh, funny, all of those qualities. And I thought, I'm going to write a play about Aboriginal men that I know. So, yeah, it started there. And I, at the same time, I saw a play called 12 Angry Men and I thought, I'm going to borrow that plot, <laughs> smash the two things together. And then I was really intrigued about also about um, the arrival of the First Fleet and the fact that no one had told us that story from the Aboriginal perspective. Yeah, wow. I I, I love the inspiration with um, 12 Angry Men, but something um, a bit, uh, I guess, a bit more wholesome. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So um, your the play or the visitors focuses on like seven different characters. What was the I guess um, either inspiration or significance of the the characters that you have in your lineup? Yes, so I um, they're kind of archetypes in a way. So one of them's the philosopher, one of them is the engineer, one of them is the tradie kind of character. There's the healer, there's the bureaucrat, um, there's the young initiate. And there's, uh, um, uh, I think I've forgotten who the other is. <laughs> but uh, I should know this play inside out. I've worked on it so long, <laughs> this idea. Um, but, yeah, so they, they, they represent seven different, I guess, philosophies of life. And, again, I wanted to show Aboriginal people not as a homogenous group who all felt and thought the same but had different opinions and different biases and different um, views on the world, worldviews. And so, yeah, I thought Seven would kind of capture a fair range of characters. That's awesome. And so you've then also, I know a lot of this is happening almost simultaneously this year. So you've had The Visitors be published um, in a novel form, which is incredible. Congratulations. So that was out in around August. That's right. And then now the thing which we are sort of the focus of today's discussion is the adaptation into an opera, which is being launched across 18th to 21st of October in Melbourne at the Arts Centre Melbourne. So this is something that you can either see in person or on the 19th of October, there is a live stream option. Oh, great. That's great. I I think that's very handy, very flexible for people. Um, But this is fascinating to me, especially with these two works coming out around the same sort of time. Could you tell us a bit about what the process was like for adapting a a play into a novel format and then an opera as well? Yes, it was completely the opposite. Each approach was, um, I had to approach them differently. The opera was really a distillation of the ideas. So I had the play and I kind of honed it down into the peak turning points of that story, that narrative. And, of course, the music tells most of the story in an opera. And Christopher Sainsbury has done an amazing job in creating the score. It's really beautiful, and I can't wait to hear it with those seven uh, voices. Uh, But the novel, on the other hand, I had to go much deeper. I had to go deeper into the research for um, the story. I had to go to each of their countries and... uh, talk about the natural environment and the wildlife, the animals and the birds and the weather and the stars, not the stars. Yeah. <laughs> I think I read your book and uh, used that as reference. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> it's good to hear. <laughs> yes. And uh, so it was much more research. I read all the uh, accounts of the First Fleet, um, their journals, and tried to pick up all the um 
encounters, although in the play uh, they don't actually meet. They It's right on the cusp of them welcoming to country. Um, in the book I go a little bit further and I talk about the events that happened uh, 15 months after the arrival. And so I talk a little bit about the devastation that was wrought on the Aboriginal population and things like smallpox. So completely different approaches. Yeah, I had to do a lot more research for the book, but the play, the opera was quite, um, it was just about finding those big moments in the story and leaving some of the emotional uh, narrative to the music to tell. Oh, wow. And this might be um, a bit of a, I don't know, sort of random question, but is there any sort of, I guess, like strengths that you've been able to pick up on the way that your storytelling is either supported through the different mediums? Like, is there something where you sort of get that benefit from novels versus what you've been able to achieve with the opera or the play? Mm, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't quite know how to answer that. I mean, my my background is as a playwright, and so that's what I feel most comfortable in. The mm-hmm. novel took me into areas of writing that I hadn't sort of investigated before, although I've done a, a YA novel as well in the past. And um, I think, you know, I had to build my novel muscle really to do that. Um, yeah. So, and with the opera, I guess it's just about um, trying to be as poetic as possible. Um, but, you know, again, allowing the music to tell a lot of the narrative of the story. Yes. So it's Beautiful. about not being precious as well because, you know, it had to be sliced down to, to a minimal, minimal story really so that the music could, um, you know, follow follow those characters through. Yeah. And so then with the, um, I guess with the opera, it sounds like quite a collaborative approach. So you need many components. Uh, you've been working with a Dara composer, um, Christopher, as well as just, I guess, the general team behind everything. Could you talk us a bit about what that sort of creative process was for you, especially with the, um, I guess, with the writing of those portions? Yes. So Christopher actually had worked on the music for the first um, play version of the the visitors way back in 2020. So he wrote the music for that. And he was talking to Richard Mills from Victorian Opera, pitching a few ideas to him. And they uh, uh, honed in on the visitors as a potential story. So it was then uh, just a process of going back and forwards between Christopher and myself doing the draft. He then tweaked some of the lines to fit the sort of the musical beat of the of each I'm not musical so I can't yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he had to make the words fit um the music so there was a little bit of tweaking there so occasionally there's a word or a phrase or something that's not mine and that's quite unusual because that doesn't happen in playwriting um so yeah but it was a very collaborative process and it was quite an easy process too um I shouldn't say that you meant to sort of labor really hard over <laughs> <laughs> you're out but um yeah Christopher was really a breeze to work with oh that's and beautiful then, uh Richard Mills took me through the play script and gave me almost like a master class in how to write a libretto so that was really valuable too I had input from another playwright who does uh writes opera as well and he gave me advice about how to make the story as big as possible you know those big moments 
It's melodrama almost. Yeah, I get definitely a... I get the sense from you. It's a very different experience. It, even the same story being adapted into those three different mediums is very interesting. I think my background as an advertising copywriter means that I'm not really precious. I'm very much geared, my writing is very much geared to who the audience is and what the purpose of it is. So I can kind of code switch in my brain a little bit about um, what needs to work for what medium. I mean, one of the most challenging writing projects I ever did was write an episode of Little Jay and Big Cuz. And that's a, you know, a, I think it's an 11 minute animation. And that was really hard as a playwright because it's all about the pictures, not so much about the dialogue. So that was really a challenging project. But I think my I'm quite good at writing for different audiences and different purposes. Yeah, beautiful. I hope so. you definitely are very well um very very successful in your writing clearly very impactful and that's awesome um little jane big big cars i didn't know that you'd written um an episode that's wonderful to hear yeah that was fun and so yeah i can it sounds like it i can imagine um it's similar for me with like um radio just the experience of starting this show in lockdown and needing to just have like phone calls with no sort of visual of chat with people um and now being able to see people in person and everything and just it's funny but even conducting interviews in different um sort of settings you yes. presents a new challenge as well yes and so you'd mentioned um how you code switch depending on sort of the audience and what you're trying to get across so i wanted to ask when it comes to the visitors i feel like you've illustrated this well so far but what is either like sort of key messages or key ideas that you're hoping um, any of the attendees or any of the readers, depending on the medium, uh, take away after having that experience? Again, that's a really big question. Uh, But I'm really hoping that people, uh, you know, one of the things, one of the reasons I wanted to write about Aboriginal men in particular, and in the opera there's female singers And in the play version, there's also female actors. So we've changed that from the original, but the book still has the male characters. But one of the things I wanted to do was um, to present Aboriginal people as having agency. And that's a really interesting thing right at the moment um, in our history. Uh, You know, what, what if we had a choice? What if we could make those decisions about whether to welcome aliens onto our country or not? Would we follow our protocols or would we um, just try and send them on their way because they're destructive? And they knew they were destructive. They knew from 18 years before with Cook's visit that they were destructive, chopping down trees and trampling over country and shooting someone in the leg, uh, those kind of things. And so um, I think, you know, I want an audience to be able to see this uh, event 26th of January, 1788, and um, have a think about really the impact of colonisation on Australia and what it's meant for Aboriginal people. And I'm not trying to beat people over the head with the story. I just want them to explore it and think about it a little bit differently. Yeah, that's the most important thing, I think, with with um, the things that I write is, is about having the audience engage with those perspectives that they might not have um, thought about before. And, of course, we know at the end uh, what's going to happen to Aboriginal people. We we sort of understand the consequences of that. But I still wanted uh, an element of hope in my storytelling and joy. 
and resilience, to show the resilience of Aboriginal people. And I'm always struck by when I hear a um, welcome to country, just that the act of generosity of the elders, when they say things like, well, you're welcome to this country from the tips of the trees to the roots of the trees, and we ask only that you look after the children of this country and the land. I think that's an incredible act of generosity, and I wanted to imbue my story with that sense of generosity as well. So then I wanted to ask, after this experience with working in sort of an opera scene, is this something that you would be considering retrying in future with a new work? Yes, well, uh, I've got a couple of works in the um, in, happening at the moment um, in different stages of development. I've got a new commission and another play that um, is about to be workshopped later this year. Um, and I really enjoyed the process of uh, doing the libretto and I would certainly be open to that possibility again. But I think I had a really easy run with working with Christopher this time. So it's not always going to be so simple, um, but that's okay. Um, things don't have to be easy. Things can be um, hard work. I mean, in many, many a play development, there's been tears shed over the process and <laughs> a struggle to get the story onto the stage. But, uh, yeah, I'd be happy to do another one for sure. Well, I look forward to seeing your work in future and I'm very excited to see the opera as well. I'll have to secure my tickets before they start, uh, you know, selling like hotcakes. <laughs> but um, congratulations. Are, are you under 30? Yes. Yes. Well, there's cheaper tickets for under 30s. Oh, I love that. Why <laughs> Why are we a lucky age group? <laughs> yes, just to encourage more younger people to attend the opera. It's not just for older people. Well, that's excellent. So to our listeners as well, uh, if you're under 30, you do have cheaper tickets. So this is uh, a great opportunity to get invested in the opera scene in Melbourne. Yes. And the voices are amazing. So, And uh, Christopher's brief was to write um, tunes as well. So they're really kind of catchy songs. You'll be singing them in your <laughs> spare time. Excellent. Something to add to the playlist. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Jane, thank you so much for your time today and congratulations on the incredible journey that The Visitors has been on across the last decade. Um, I'm For anyone who's listening as well, remember that it's 18th to 21st of October. The Visitors Opera will be available uh, in Melbourne, so it's going to be at the Arts Centre Melbourne. Um, you can get your tickets online. I'd just be searching up Victorian Opera, looking at The Visitors, uh, securing your place. And there is also a live stream option on October 19th for anyone who is, you know, more like a homebody but still would love to experience the beauty of the opera. So, Jane, thank you for your time and congratulations again. Thank you, Crystal. It's been a pleasure. So we've just been chatting with Marawari playwright Jane Harrison about her incredible work, The Visitors, which is a retelling of the 26th of January 1788 from a First Nations perspective and is a work that started off as a play but is now published as a novel and also an upcoming opera in our very own Melbourne city. So... If you are keen to hear more from Jane, uh, the Visitors Wheeler Centre event is tomorrow, Monday, 9th of October at 7.30pm. Tickets for First Nations attendees are free, otherwise a full price ticket is only $15. And this uh, is also hosted by RRR's own Daniel James and includes an operatic performance by Wiradjuri Soprano and also a cast member of the Visitors Opera, Shantae Cherie. 
And then uh, another thing to look forward to, so we have the Wheeler Centre event on Monday 9th of October, but also the Visitors Opera is opening on October 18th to 21st at the Arts Centre Melbourne. And so as we've heard from Jane just now, under 30s get cheaper tickets and also October 19th is said to be a live stream as well. So if you are homebound, you should hopefully be able to still enjoy uh, this exploration of Jane's incredible work. Yama, and welcome back to Indigenuity on 3RRR. We're about to have a chat with Waka Waka man, Harley Mann. Harley is the founder of Na Jinyong Circus, recipient of the 2018 Melbourne Fringe Award for Best Emerging Circus Act, and is the director of upcoming Melbourne Fringe Circus event called Of the Land on Which We Meet. Of the Land on Which We Meet will be showing as part of the Deadly Fringe lineup across each night from Thursday, October 12th to Sunday, October 15th at the Meat Market Cobblestone Pavilion in North Melbourne. Of the Land on Which We Meet is a 70-minute performance exploring the questions of what does it mean to be where we are? What do we as 21st century Australians think it means to be on country? This event is also part of the Melbourne Fringe Encore program at Geelong Arts Centre with an encore session on Saturday 28th of October. Harley Mann, welcome to Indigenuity. Thanks, Crystal. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start off by asking, what is it about circus performance that drew you into that art form? I think that's a good question. I mean, half of it is like um, just kind of coincidental um, laziness in the sense that I, I started doing it as a, uh, <clears throat> a young fella uh, when I was five as like my recreational sport. Mum didn't really um, like uh, contact sports uh, and the kind of culture that sort of surrounded those those kind of competitive sports. Um, and so you know, put us into the circus classes, the kind of community circus, which is that kind of that same sort of physicality and, and elite sort of sportsmanship, but with a kind of very different kind of connectedness and culturalness and, and community and artistic output. And I think, you know, for a long time, I just did it as sport or as kind of, you know, an after-school thing. Maybe it was kind of childcare more than anything. Um, but uh, in terms of growing up and, and slowly kind of figuring out who I wanted to be and, and how I wanted to exist in the world, I started to realise that the, the, the values that this community holds, the kind of connectedness, the, the support, uh, the storytelling, the questioning, um, the political activism, these were all things that really kind of sat quite well in, in who I wanted to be. Um, and so from there, it really made uh, made it quite easy for me growing up and, and deciding what sort of career pathway to follow to sort of stick in a world that, one, I had been in for a long time and understand it really well, but also one that, that reflected my own sort of values as a person. Wow, that's incredible, especially the common values. I guess that sort of really well leads into my next question because uh, you are the founder of Najinung Circus. Could you tell us about how your cultural identity and seemingly as well these common values through the art form of circus performance, um, your cultural identity and also this uh, circus that you've founded have all sort of come together? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's it's a, it's a kind of, a, a complicated question, I think, because I think while while circus as an art form has a, a real sense of community and communityness, um, and that that reflects a lot of 
First Nations community and cultural kind of practices. It's like when you go to a circus festival, we sit around, we learn from our elders, we share stories, we perform at night, we yarn, we do all these things um, that feel really reminiscent and and the same as what Blackfellas do. Um, but at the same time, the art form is, in terms of kind of the sector and in terms of the wider art sector, circus is probably um, arguably the most sort of uh, disenfranchised or kind of furthest down the pecking order. You know, we have the fewest number of um, major organisations um, and kind of, you know, often we don't have even a, a funding stream uh, in in what we do. So I think when you start to look at the, that, that kind of how far back the art sector is, and then you start to lay a cultural engagement and and spaces for First Nations stories within that art form, very quickly it becomes quite uh, few and far between. So in in founding uh, Najanang, it was really really about kind of creating space for those voices and those stories. Um, you know, I think it's that thing I always believe in and, and people say this all the time, that you, you can't be what you can't see. And in in creating this company, it's, it's about creating a voice and creating a, um, a representation for other mob and, and emerging First Nations artists to see how how our worlds can collide, how uh, circus can be a, an avenue for storytelling. Uh, and also it's just kind of, it, for me, it feels like a kind of real no-brainer because, you know, we spend a lot of time out uh, doing workshops and communities and things like that and, and you see these young kids kind of fearlessly um, throwing flips and doing tricks and um, a sense of natural performance that is just a part of them uh, so yeah I don't think it's it's at all the the, the artist and the, and the kind of emerging talent that is is that is lacking but rather the pathways and the representation wow and because um, you what you've just you've explained so many things that were just so wonderful although sad to hear that there isn't a whole lot of funding support or um i guess recognition of the circus art form but then at the same time that you're working with community through Najinung, is there a way for any of our listeners to support your efforts whether that be financially or anything else uh i mean there's sort of endless ways i i don't i don't think we're the kind of company that wants to you know big note or reach out or kind of ask funds and maybe that's the black fellow in me as well you know mm-hmm. we're not looking for handouts i think the kind of the thing that that we are looking for is to tell our stories to our community and um any listeners that want to come and see the work and start to understand the things that we're talking about the best way to do it is to come along um and reach out and then i think additionally to that if if anyone is interested in being a circus artist is about also reaching out and we're just sort of we're here to talk and, and that's what we do and we have a few different avenues and pathways where we can support and we would love to do that. Wonderful. And for anyone who is interested in finding more about Najinang, um, the spelling is N-A space D-J-I-N-A-N-G. So I would give that a Google mm. search and find out more. Um, but then mm. I guess with a focus on this storytelling, could you talk mm-hmm. us through some of the themes in your piece of, of the land on which we meet? Yeah, it's a really... Um, this show is like it's had a real kind of um, a real turbulent history I would say it was a part of the deliverance program sort of on the cusp of COVID um, so I guess over the last sort of three years we've cancelled the show three times um, most 
the most kind of recent cancellation was uh, on opening night when I got COVID. So the show is kind of like it's done a whole bunch of um, growing and changing when the world has done a whole bunch of growing and changing all at once. Um, but essentially the idea came from a few different things. Like it came from an observation, which was um, I felt like in a lot of the spaces that I was being and uh, a lot of the things that I was seeing that uh, the acknowledgement or acknowledgement of country uh, had become quite politicized and, and often tokenistic uh, or, or often just like confused and trepidatious. And uh, I was, I was really kind of curious as to what that meant um, and, and what, and why that was the kind of case. And, and so from there, we kind of started to, to dive deeper into this thing of like, okay, well, what is acknowledging country? Why are we acknowledging acknowledging country and then from there kind of the tangent of that is like what is um <clears throat> what is the relationship to country what is this thing that we're what is country and and you know black fellows talk about country all the time it's like our favorite word um but i think for me and spending time thinking about it and looking at it i think there's quite a lot of variations and interpretations of connection to country and i also think that um most people kind of first nations and non-first nations alike have their own versions most cultures around the world have their own versions it's kind of um you know you even look in a very kind of western context and, and something like saying grace uh and being thankful for the kind of caring and and uh wellness and generosity that place and opportunity and space has brought to you and all of a sudden you start to see some kind of really interesting parallels and so I'm curious as to the reasoning why there's a kind of uh, why there's why the, when we get into the space of Australian context and the first national context and acknowledging country, there's this kind of dissonance or this kind of barrier where people don't feel like they understand or can appreciate or value this thing that is, you know, universally understood as being something quite important. And then also, I guess, sort of leading in from that, could you tell us a bit about the three performers that you have in the show? Because it seems to be quite significant um, and tying into the themes as well. Yeah. So, I mean, there are kind of a couple of things involved in making this work, which was about kind of going, I guess, in terms of how the, the work is framed, it is it is it's framed on this place of like country or land, right? So there's a sort of a, a piece of land. And the idea is that land and country holds story, it holds memory. So what we've done in, from a kind of theatrical point of view is dislodged this piece of land and held it outside of sort of space and time so that multiple generations or kind of metaphorical representations of generations can interact in the sort of same plane um, to reveal that a lot of the things that we do as human beings have a universality um, and the thing that is kind of consistent and constant through all that is the country. Uh, so it's, it's stuff like, um, you know, we all grow up, we all go through kind of universal human experiences like falling in love, having our heart broken, puberty, all these different things. Um, and, and the kind of question that I had always had was like, how many people before us and how many people after us will do exactly or almost exactly the same thing on the piece of land that we're on like um it's like that thing of like 
you know, who falls over, trips on the same tree root and grazes their knee. Um, it's the thing of like you can see on trails where where rocks have sort of been eroded away because hundreds of thousands of people have rubbed their hand on it as they walk up this hill. And it's stuff like that to kind of go like actually in the kind of micro and macro where we're sort of a piece of a bigger thing and we're all very similar and the same. And in doing that, we've casted the show with multiple generations of people. So a First Nation circus artist, um, a descendant of, of a kind of a Western colonial uh, family or heritage, and then a sort of second generation migrant heritage. Um, all people that are living and working and performing in Australia, all with kind of distinctly different histories and pasts, uh, but living fundamentally similar lives. Wow. Sorry, that's very powerful. Um I, I'm very excited to see this performance, um, and I, I think uh, demonstrating those different connections is very interesting. So um, mm. I guess my final question would be, and I feel like you've covered this pretty well anyway so far, but what are you hoping that attendees will um, either be thinking about or be taking away with them after viewing of the land on which we meet? I mean, there are kind of a couple of things like... Um, I think in the, in the moment in time when we were making the show and it kind of was endlessly cancelled, I was kind of like, oh, God, this is this is not good. This is not a good sign. This show must not need to exist in the world. Uh, um, and then all of a sudden, the kind of timing coincidence, like the show's sort of now been in the work for a year and things like that. It also is performing on the referendum vote day as well. And so I wonder if that is, you know, uh, leaning into the kind of cosmic spiritual belief of of serendipity I, I also wonder if if it is um fortuitous that that these kind of endless cancellations happened and continue to happen for it to kind of culminate into this sort of one very kind of particularly important moment in in history uh so i would hope that the work sort of sits in a space where people are kind of agitated and provoked to think about their relationship to space and country, their relationship to First Nations people and the purpose of the acknowledgement in that space. We've spent a lot of time looking at, you know, why do we do an acknowledgement? And one of the things that I'm quite interested in at the moment is purpose and kind of going like, what is the purpose? And before you do an acknowledgement, I think you should also know in your head what is the purpose. And the purpose can be many things at many different times. Sometimes I think the purpose is to uh, keep story alive. And at which point my acknowledgement would be filled with the knowledge that I know about that land that I have permission to talk about or the people or the language names or the things to kind of keep that alive. I think at other times the purpose is political. I think it's about kind of going, oh, remember we're still on country that is unceded and, um, you know, there's no treaty and all these things. So I think also understanding the purpose, understanding the context and, and having people sit in that, feel that, and feel a kind of an ownership and understanding to do that because at the end of the day, an acknowledgement is is one of the, the only things that non-First Nations people have kind of a sense of, um, like it's yours. When you do it, it's yours. It's about how, what you're acknowledging. It's, it's about who you're acknowledging. It's, um, yeah, there's a kind of sense of ownership, I think, there. Uh, not of the place, not of the land, not of the stories, but of the process of acknowledging mm. the place and land and stories that you're on. Incredible. Well, Holly, congratulations on this show. 
I mean, it's been on a bit of a journey. So congratulations on it finally coming to its launch. Um, for our listeners, uh, you can check out Of the Land on Which We Meet at as part of the Deadly Fringe program for Melbourne Fringe Festival. It's running from Thursday, October 12th to Sunday, October 15th, each night, as uh, as Harley's pointed out, actually over the referendum date as well. Um, and yeah. uh, if you're looking for tickets, you can go search up either the Deadly Fringe program or searching up Harley Mann or Of the Land on Which We Meet. Um, and I look forward to seeing you all there. Harley, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Indigenuity, a weekly radio show hosting conversations with Indigenous knowledge holders showcasing all forms of Indigenous ingenuity. Indigenuity is broadcast live on Triple R every Sunday afternoon. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website or Twitter at IndigenuityAU.